after he fell from heaven. Milton writes this, it's printed for you in the front of your bulletin if you want to look at it, but Milton writes this with the devil speaking. The devil says, For never can true repentance grow where wounds of deadly hate have pierced so, so deep. In other words, what the scholars say is that Satan can't say, I'm sorry to God. He can't repent because he doesn't believe in God's grace. He doesn't believe in God's power to restore him. There's Kathy Ames, a character in John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. She's described as a malformed soul. She's an evil woman who delights in using and destroying people. And she uses and destroys people because she doesn't believe in a love for love's sake. Nobody can truly love her for who she is. And because she doesn't believe in love, she can't turn from her ways. She doesn't believe in grace. And she ends up destroying anyone who is around her. And in the end, she destroys herself. So lest you think that my only friends come from characters in books, I was speaking with a real live human being a few days ago. He's at the end of his life, the latter part of his life. He was sad. He was disappointed. Very discouraged. And because I was working on this sermon, I asked him if he believed in the redeeming power of God's grace. And this was his answer to me. He said he believed in Jesus. He just didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. That God did not raise him from death to new life. And I had to say to my friend, if Jesus Christ has not been raised, then we have no hope. So the one question that I have for you this morning before we open up the the prophecy of Zechariah, the one question that I would like for you to consider all throughout the sermon is do you really believe in the redeeming power of God's grace as seen in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God? Do you believe that God can fix whatever you think may be wrong in the world? Or, like I asked my friend, do you believe there's anything wrong in you that needs to be fixed? Do you believe in the redeeming power of God's grace? The point is this. If you don't believe that God is in the business of restoration, of renewal, of redemption, if you believe that you may be beyond the scope of God's redemptive power or maybe you don't need to be renewed, then I will tell you, you'll be just like that man that I talked to last week. You will eventually despair and you will eventually die in desperation. If, on the other hand, you believe in the God whose business it is to restore, then as you come to know this God whose business it is to restore, you'll want to turn away from yourself and turn into him, enter into his presence, and truly live. This is why I'm excited about beginning a new series in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah brings two emphases to the table that we're going to discover over the course of the next few months. And the first is that it is necessary for us as God's people to be continually renewed by God himself. 
And secondly, God's renewing grace makes us aware of his presence. And as we're made aware of his presence, we're ushered into that presence so that we will live differently. That's what Zechariah is all about. Let's read together our passage. It's printed for you in your bulletins. We're just going to simply read the introduction this morning. Establish a foundation for what is to come in the weeks ahead. So let's read together Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read through verse 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Idu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear, or they did not pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented. And they said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, these, these words of God to the people of Zechariah's day. It's a call for your people to turn back to you. And this morning I ask that your call would go forth, that same call to me and to the people gathered here this morning, that we would turn back to you. That your word would overtake us even. And that we'd experience life in your presence. We give you thanks. Ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So Zechariah, first of all, let's do some introductory work very, very quickly. Zechariah is a prophetic book, and it's an apocalyptic book. In fact, I was telling the Sunday school class this morning that as all of us got into, uh, all, all your pastors got into studying the book of Zechariah, one of the commentators, one of the scholars said, Zechariah is probably the hardest book in the whole Bible. And we all said, should we preach from this? It's prophetic in the sense that Zechariah's words given to him from God himself speaks to a concrete historical situation. It brings a living, dynamic, concrete word of God to a particular people at a particular place in time so that they would see the world in which they were living in differently. The word of God prophetically comes to the people of Zechariah so that they could better understand the world in which they lived in. That's what it means, prophetic. It's also apocalyptic. Not today, but beginning next week, we'll begin the night visions of Zechariah. And these night visions are given to God's people after this initial call in the first six verses, so that their vision and understanding of reality would be expanded. The visions, the apocalyptic visions, it's, it's very similar to if you're, if you're one of those young people or even if you're one of those old people like me that like to watch the sci-fi channel. When you're, when you're watching all these TV shows about 
hidden realities or alternate universes or layers of reality. Zechariah is apocalyptic in that sense. It's a little bit different. First of all, it's the Word of God, so this is true. Secondly, it's a little bit different than the TV shows or the movies because what Zechariah is doing with all these visions, he's giving these visions to the people not so that they can escape reality, but these visions are given to the people in the manner that they're given so that they can better understand and engage the world that they are living in. So Zechariah White writes in the way that he writes. He's bringing God's word to the people of Zechariah's time, but also to our time this morning. He's giving us a picture of God's activity in the world so that God's people can maintain their faith in the face of evil and disturbing times. Zechariah is saying, despite appearances, it is God who rules the world and the time is coming when he will overthrow evil and he will establish his kingdom fully in the here and now. And all we're going to do this morning is look at the introduction. We're going to look for three things here. It provides the basis for the rest of the book. We're going to look at God's anger, we're going to look at God's desire, and we're going to look at God's power. The first thing that we have to approach is something that's not very comfortable, it's God's anger. Look at verse 2, the Lord was angry with your fathers. Verse 4, don't be like your fathers, who I'm angry with, or I was angry with, when the prophets scolded them about their evil ways and their evil deeds. They didn't pay, pay attention. They didn't hear. In verse 5, where are your fathers now? So why is God angry at the previous generations? Because you have to deal with this because in a sense, these six verses, the, the background of these six verses is the Lord's anger. But it's not an anger like we think of anger. It's not an anger like my anger so often is. I get angry because other people sometimes mess up my day. They, might, they make life inconvenient for me. So I get mad. My anger is full of sin. My anger is full of and tainted with selfishness. All you have to do is go and ask my children or ask my wife. But you do realize there are times in our lives when we get angry because something is truly bad. Doesn't it make you mad when you see someone mistreated? Doesn't it make you angry when you see something that you know is wrong? I had dinner with uh, a couple of friends the other night and we were talking about... Um, when I was growing up, and my father passed away when I was little. I grew up with a sister and a single mom, and I remember, they were asking me what I remember about that time. I, I, I remember having to move, and I remember my mom having to put everything together. We, we were little, so I couldn't help really move big stuff, so she went out and she hired some men uh, to help us move. They were paid by the hour, and something that should have taken those men two hours took them all day. And I remember my mom being hurt. I remember my mom going into a room and, and she was crying. And I remember getting mad at those men. 
And the reason why I was mad at those men is because I saw them doing something to my mother whom I love, and it was hurting her. It's not exactly the way God gets angry, but it's something similar. God gets angry when he sees something or someone he loves being hurt. He gets mad. He gets angry without any selfish reasons at all, simply because he loves. Now, I want you to think about this anger in these terms. In the very beginning, God makes Adam and Eve perfectly holy and happy. He gives them everything that they could possibly need. And what do they do? They turn away from him into themselves, into something else, and it hurt them. God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt, and he makes great promises to them. And what do they do? They turn away from him, and it hurt them. God raises up kings and prophets to help the people. And what did they continue to do over and over and over again? They continue to turn away from God and his love and his ways, and it hurt them. Each time, God would come back to them and devise new and better ways so that he could be near his people. And what did the people continually do but turn away from him time and time again? God was angry. And this is important because if he were not angry, he would not care. In a sense, God's anger is our only hope. You know what's worse than God being angry? God being indifferent. God being uninterested. God is angry because he loves us and he wants to be near us. Which leads to our second idea, that is God's desire. Realize the history of Israel, it should have ended with the exile. If you're familiar with Old Testament history... You will know that from the very beginning, God tells his people that that if they don't want to live in his presence, if they don't want to live near him and with him and according to the, the way it is to live with him, then they would get exactly what they would ask for. They would get life away from him. That's exile. So God, from the very beginning of Israel's history, said, if you don't want to live with me in the way that we have to live together, then you'll get what you want, and that is exile. And that's what happened. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken away. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom falls, and they got what they wanted, exile. And here we are in the book of Zechariah, and we see that God is in the business, even after exile, God is in the business of never giving up on his people. What is it that God desires most? It's to be near his people. And Zechariah is writing to a people who have again been brought back to the land. God works through a pagan king. At first it was Cyrus and now it's Darius. And and allows God's people back into Jerusalem, into Zion, into the city of God. And he says, I want you to build this temple. They even give them all the money and all the tools and all the resources that they need so that they can build the temple, so that they can meet with God and live in his presence. And he says, here you are. Work. Enjoy. 
lived near me. And by the time we get to Zechariah 1, God's people, what's happened? They're discouraged. They're afraid. They're distracted. They're probably worried about their finances due to high taxation. They had problems with the people outside the community. They had problems with the people inside the community. They came back all excited to build the temple. But you know what happened? The realities of ordinary life took over. It was easy to get caught up in their own affairs. They, they have come back physically from exile, but they've not been radically changed by their experience. Their commitment to God is falling short. So Zechariah says, don't be like your fathers. Don't be like the previous generations. I don't want you to experience what they experienced. God's desire is for our good. You can see how this is relevant to us, don't you? We don't have the temple now. And we don't have the temple because we know that he wants to be near us. Not because of a temple, not because of a building, but, but because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. God wants to be so near us that he sends his son who takes on flesh and his glory comes down. And what we understand now as New Testament Christians is the temple was just the shadow and the reality is the person of Jesus Christ. God wants to be near us so much that he becomes man to dwell with us. So the question is not, what is God's desire? He wants to be near us. The question is, what is our desire? Um, who are you listening to? What are you busy about in the world today? Are you like the people of Zechariah's time? Discouraged? caught up in the ordinary events of life? Or do you believe that God is in the business of pursuing us even now? Let me, let me put it to you this way. Let me ask you this question. This is important. The first question that I want you to consider is, do you really believe that, that God is in the business of restoring us? The second question is this. Has the Christian life seemingly not come through? For you. Has Jesus Christ, this is important, seemingly not come through for you? And, and I need you to honestly think about that because uh, I want to make the case to you this morning that that's the reason why we're pursuing all these other things to make us happy. Because we don't believe that God has come through for us. What do you think on most? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What is it that excites you most in life? Is there something out there that you think that you need or somebody out there that you think that you need that maybe God has not provided yet and you think if you get that then everything will be okay? God's desire is to be near you. What do you desire most?
which leads to the last point that we need to get a hold of if we're going to answer those two questions in a way that gives us power to live faithfully in this world. God's power. Are you living in light of God's power to work in your life, to renew and to restore and to redeem you, not only as an individual, but the whole world? And and what Zechariah is really all about is that Zechariah is trying to give God's people the proper lenses through which to view the world. Because if we're honest, we do have to say at this point in time, there are at least days and there are at least moments and maybe extended periods, or maybe it's your whole life right now, where we don't think the Christian life has come through for us. And we're looking and we're, we're, we're trying as hard as we can to get what it is that we think we want so that we can experience the fullness of what we're intended to be. You see, the whole point of Zechariah here is he's calling God's people to turn back to him. And, and if they are to turn back to him, they'll be able to understand the rest of what he's going to provide for them, which is the visions of the, 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 the real world all around them. Because you know what happens immediately after this? Zechariah begins his visions. And, and the visions have to do with this. It's almost like parting the curtains from what we look at just with our eyes. And he's saying, there's all sorts of other layers of reality out there that you need to see and you need to understand so that you can fully come to grips with what I'm doing in the world. Because, because next week, Hal's going to preach on the peace and the justice that God provides in the world. The following week, Matt's going to come on and talk about the presence of God. And then we're going to hear about the righteousness of God. And then we're going to hear about the purpose and the power of God and the authority of God and the victory of God. And then the last chapters of Zechariah is all about the king that ushers into the kingdom. And you know who that is. It's Jesus. And what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't come on a big white horse with a big, big flashing sword. He comes on a little donkey and he looks weak. And Zechariah is saying, repent. You need to change the way that you are looking at the world and the way that you think that you understand the world and see what's really going on in the world. And it is God is king. You see, the temptation here is to think that we're not the ones that need to repent. You think about it in these terms. Zechariah is talking to the people who have left their homes and they've come back at great cost to themselves to build the temple of God. I mean, if I'm Zechariah, if I'm the people in Zechariah, I'm saying, I'm saying, why are you talking to me? I'm the one that came back. I'm saying, I'm the one that that left our homes. We're the committed ones. You need to go back to Babylon and you need to talk to those people. See, the call to repentance is to the committed ones. The call to repentance is to us, the ones that came to Sunday school this morning, that came to church this morning. Because God's people are in need of continual renewal Every day, do you believe that that's what God sent his son to do in the world, to continually remind us and renew us so that over the course of our lives, as we turn to him and enter into his presence, that we are changed and not only we're changed, but we're seeing the world differently. 
You see, the Israelites have moved closer to the physical temple, but they need to move into his presence spiritually. We can look good on the inside and be a mess on the, uh, on the I'm sorry, we can look good on the outside and be a mess on the inside. God calls. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Don't think that this is something that you do to get God to do something because the whole basis of this text is God is already the one that called you in the first place. God is saying, I've been the one drawing near to you all the time. Now turn to me and when you turn to me, you'll enter into my presence and you'll be able to see the reality that's all around us that will change the way that you understand the world that you live in. At the end of this passage, the word overtakes the fathers. The word overtook the fathers. You see, some don't respond to God's gracious call, and they will experience life apart from God, which is exile. Other people are overtaken by God's desire. They're overtaken by God's power, and they turn to him and live. So in Zechariah, the prophetic word of the Lord comes with power. And for us, the word of the Lord took on flesh and dwelt among us. You do realize that we have it so much better than the people of Zechariah's day. Jesus is the dwelling place of God's glory. He is is the provision of sacrifice that, that transforms God's anger into love and mercy. Jesus is God's meeting place where where his people join together to celebrate his work. Jesus is, is, is where the flowing of water pours forth, which is none other than the Spirit of God. Jesus is the reality. He is the reason that the temple was built. The people in the Old Testament days saw the shadows. We have the reality. Therefore, the call to us is that much more intense God says, return to me and enter into my presence. And when you enter into my presence, when you seek me for my sake alone, you will come to see the world in a different way. And when you see the world in a different way, you will live differently. You see, under the new covenant, our our inheritance is not a literal land. It's not a physical temple but according to Hebrews 3 and 4, it is the rest that, God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ offers. The call to us this morning, whether you are a believer, whether you are an unbeliever, is God has drawn near. Now turn to him and enter into his rest through the person of Jesus Christ. We can give up on ourselves. We can give up on our own expectations. We give up on our own interpretations of reality. We listen to the word of God, which helps us understand what's going on. And we can say to God, I am not my own. I was bought at a price. We can say with Mary, let it be, let it be to me according to your word. If we're going to understand the rest of Zechariah which I do believe is probably one of the hardest books in the Bible. The first thing that we have to do as God's people is say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God, for wanting to go my own way. I'm sorry, God, even in the face of your kindness to us, I continue to seek my own way. 
Help me to see the power of your redeeming grace. Because God's anger has been turned away by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. God desires to be so near you that he takes on flesh. And God is powerful enough to take Jesus who rested in the grave, raised him from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And it may appear differently. But there will be a day in the future when Jesus Christ will come again and he will come again riding on a big white horse and that white horse will be carrying a sword and there will be no more opportunities for us to repent. Let's turn at the beginning of this series back to God, enter into his presence and experience life. Let's pray. Father, I I do pray that um, these short six verses would remind us of your righteous anger, not not in a whimsical way, but in a way that is so filled with love that you simply want us to experience life. Help us to see it in that light. Help us to know without a shadow of a doubt that it is your desire to be near us. Overwhelm us with your powerful love so that we would come back to you and seek you with everything that we are. Father, even as we think about coming into your presence through this table, we ask your blessings now. For it's in Jesus' name, through his power and through his love, we ask all things. Amen. The elders come forward as we...